Hello, everyone. My name is Ben, and I'm the new host of Come Follow Up. This year, our third season, you're going to notice a few new things we've implemented with the hope that they will help all of us discover more, not only about the scriptures, but about the way the Spirit works within each of us individually. We'll continue to share our experiences here, and along the way, we'll ask you to share your experiences with us as well. Thank you for being here. Let's jump in. Welcome to the Old Testament, an enormous volume of ancient scripture compiled from centuries of records of the men and women who carved into stone a legacy that has endured for thousands of years. From the creation of the earth itself to the types, signs, and prophecies of the one who was sent to save it, the Old Testament is a rich and vibrant portrait of living and loving heavenly parents, a deliverer from death and sin in Jesus Christ and of all humankind struggling and striving to find their way on this grand eternal path back home. The books of Moses and Abraham and the Pearl of Great Price provide light and context to the early books of the Old Testament. In them, we come to understand our divine identity, learn of our power over Satan, and hear the voice of God declare His work and His glory. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I'm excited to learn about Joseph of Egypt. Um, I think he has a really interesting story. Uh, his brothers didn't like him. I think a lot of us can relate to that when we have family feuds. I love his story. It's about redemption, about forgiveness, about um, love um, and hard work. He rose in his ranks from slave to secondhand to um, Pharaoh. So. I'm excited to learn about him. Really understanding the roles of women in regards to the covenants, the temple, the gathering of Israel. I know kind of the like Prince of Egypt basics about Moses, but I'm really excited to learn more about his whole story. My favorite story is probably the story of uh, David and Goliath. I'm kind of a sucker for, for, for stories of courage and uh, insurmountable odds. So today's discussion comes from our study of the book of Moses, chapter 1, and the book of Abraham, chapter 3. And the two topics we're going to be discussing today are, first, the importance of the books of Moses and Abraham, and the second topic is going to be, God's work and glory is to help me gain eternal life. To help us with our discussion today, uh, we have invited our scholar, Melissa Inouye, to be with us. Thank you for being here, Melissa. Thanks for having me. It's so fun to be here. Melissa is a historian with the Church History Department. And next to Melissa, we have our special guest, Brent Topp, who is the former Dean of Religious Education at BYU. Thanks for being here, Brent. My pleasure. What an honor to be here. Thank you. So based off of our two topics, just give me your initial thoughts on the importance of the books of Moses and Abraham first. Well, for me, this could not have been a greater scripture block. Uh, I told my grandchildren that I was going to be on Come Follow Up, and they were all excited and gave me some credibility for that. And I said, I'm going to be teaching about Moses and Abraham. And then they said, well, that's because you knew them personally. <laughs> so I'm the old geezer on set today, but I love Moses and Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price. And these two chapters are truly pearls of great price. And Melissa, uh, give me your initial thoughts on either topic that we're going to discuss today. I also really love the books of Moses and Abraham. They're so unique and they're really distinct. They're part of what make us distinctive as Latter-day Saints. They contribute to our theology and then also our, our folklore and our, our music in all these interesting ways. 
Well, that sounds exciting, and I can't wait to, to dive into it uh, with both of you. We're going to turn to Brent and uh, have you give us a little insight on the books of Moses and Abraham and why they are important to us. Well, first of all, in, in Moses, it comes very early in the restoration of the gospel, within two or three months after uh, the organization of the church, June of 1830, and then into 1831, the prophet Joseph Smith is doing an inspired translation of the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean a word-for-word -word translation from one language to another, but most of what we have in what we call the Joseph Smith translation might be words or phrases or just a little restructuring of some things that were done under the inspiration uh, of the Lord through the prophet. But the book of Moses is a major revelation, a major unique theological revelation that comes as a direct result of that translation process. So this is pre-Genesis revelation, if you want to call it that. And Melissa, what about the book of Abraham? What can you tell us about that book of scripture? The Book of Abraham has a really interesting historical provenance. So in 1835 in Kirtland, a person came through with a bunch of mummies, Egyptian mummies and papyri. The church purchased those mummies and the papyri. And Joseph, um, looking over them, uh, declared that uh, within these papyri, there was a book, the Book of Abraham. He was at the time, he was studying ancient languages. He was learning Hebrew and also some Egyptian. It, it appears that he doesn't, he didn't instantly get to work on this papyri. In 1842, he began to kind of work in earnest. And over the course of a few months, the Book of Abraham was published in the church's times and seasons. And the really interesting thing about the Book of Abraham is that well, there's a couple of things. So in the first place, it, it depended on these very fragile papyrus scrolls. Um, people spoke about multiple rolls of papyrus or a long papyrus scroll. Um, they stayed in Nauvoo after the saints went to the West. And in um, 1856, Joseph Smith's family uh, sold the mummies and the papyri. Some of them ended up in Chicago in a museum. Most of them, we believe, were destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire. Uh, there were some fragments that remained that weren't destroyed. And these fragments were eventually rediscovered by the church and were published in The Friend of all magazines um, in the 1960s. Latter-day Saint scholars and non-Latter-day Saint scholars alike have concluded that the, the text that's in those fragments of papyrus does not match what's in the Book of Abraham text. So this makes us think about a couple of things like, you know, where did the Book of Abraham come from, if not from these fragments? And there's two chief answers. The first is that we don't have all the papyrus you know, again, people spoke of these long scrolls and what we have are just a very small portion of what Joseph Smith originally had access to. So there's no way to really kind of conclusively do a comparison between the text of the papyrus and the text that we are, have in the book of Abraham. And the other main point is that when we think about the way that Joseph Smith translated things, it's not like he had a dictionary of, you know, Nephite language and went back and forth uh, between the dictionary and the English. He translated the Book of Mormon through the gift and power of God. And we don't know a lot about the details, but it seems that in many instances, like is it with the Book of Moses as well, Joseph wasn't working directly from a text and going into this other language. It was a revelatory process, like what Brent mentioned with the Book of Moses. So you have a catalyst for the revelation. So in Moses, it was the translation of Genesis. And in the Book of Abraham, it is these are these scrolls. And we don't know what it was that brought about his questions 
that bring the direct revelations rather than word-for-word translations. With the book of Moses, with the book of Abraham, what experiences have you had through the Holy Ghost teaching you in your studies of these books? Well, for me personally, whether it's studying the book of Moses or any scripture or addressing any issue or challenge in life, revelation to me doesn't come in a vacuum. It doesn't just bingo without any effort on my part. So most of the time is as I'm studying something, it causes me to ask questions. And it's the questioning, the pondering that then becomes the catalyst. Then revelation comes. I get it bit by bit, piece by piece. And a lot of times after the fact, then I will say, oh, that's what the Lord was trying to teach me. So one thing that I really like about the book of Abraham is that it's a kind of theological counterweight to the patriarchy that people deal with today. In the book of Abraham, it talks about God as gods. It's it's an expansive view of God that kind of creates a theological opening for the teaching that Joseph Smith and his successors later promulgated, which is that we have a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. I think it's incredible, this revelation that Joseph Smith received. He is the founder of our faith, and through his insights and through the the visions and the revelations that he had, he was able to restore these new understandings of God that opens up this new world, which Joseph Smith and his successors later expanded on. How does that affect you as an individual? Well, um, it's a lot easier for me to try to think of becoming like a heavenly mother than it is to think of turning into a man. I mean, I just don't <laughs> think it's very reasonable or, or interesting for me. You know, So it says to me, as I am, I can, I can be on track to be like, um, like God. Thank you for sharing that. So um, as we've been talking about Joseph and the, the revelation that he received in translating and producing the book of Moses, the book of Abraham, it's hard to ignore the effort that he put into this process. How has the Lord validated the efforts that you have put in to receive revelation? Nika. I'm a convert. So when I was 12 years old, I first... Um, learned about the gospel. I knew nothing about the gospel. And I started going to church and having the missionaries teach me. And it was all so new to me, but I just kept sticking in there. And it took time and effort, you know, studying scriptures, going to Sunday school, sacrament meeting. The Lord helped me gain a testimony line upon line. And even now in my life, um, if I want answers, I've got to spend a lot of time in the scriptures and in the temple doing the thing the Lord wants me to do. And then he opens my mind and my heart and gives me answers. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, I just, I keep going back to this idea of how much the Lord really uh, appreciates the effort we put in, regardless of where we start in life. You know, being a convert, he recognizes the effort that you put in to discovering new things and he blesses us for that. Thank you so much for sharing that. We have a question from uh, one of our viewers, and we love to go to that question, and I, I want to get thoughts from both of you on what she has to ask. Hi there, my name is Melanie Cook, and I live in Lehigh, Utah. I was born and raised in a different faith and was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when I was 19 years old. And personally, I have not been able to really study much of the Pearl of Great Price. So my question today is, 
How do the books of Abraham and Moses set us apart from other faiths? Brent, you want to start us out? <laughs> well, I think, uh, where do I start? There are so many theological contributions of both, but I think our understanding and nature of a personal God is a major contribution. I think in Abraham, and specifically in the chapter that we are studying this week, uh, the doctrine of a pre-mortal existence as daughters and sons of heavenly parents, the doctrine of foreordination. We get, gain the introduction of, uh, uh, of Enoch in a more complete and profound way where we only have very little information in the, the Bible. And so I think the major contributions in my estimation is that helping us to understand doctrine and truths about God, ourselves, and the plan of salvation that are only alluded to or completely absent in the Bible. And it, to me, this is one of the greatest evidences of the prophetic mission of the prophet Joseph Smith. That, that passage in Enoch Absolutely. Um, in Moses 7 is, an, is a huge Latter-day Saint contribution to this idea of theodicy, which is this problem that religious scholars and theologians in, in many different faiths are always talking about, the problem of um, how can God, who is all-powerful and all-loving, um, allow for evil on the earth? And um, in Moses chapter 7, you get this really clear um, discussion of, of that. So it's... It's really fantastic. Well, and in that, with Enoch, I gain from that the nature of God's compassion is such a huge contrast with what much is taught in the Old Testament. We see a truly merciful, compassionate, loving Father in heaven, and presumably a mother in heaven with the same compassion and tears for our suffering. This is the kind of God that I believe in. Like, this is the kind of um, heavenly parents that I expect when I pray. Um, I'm thinking about that weeping God who sees everyone and who, who gives us our agency, which lets us screw up, um, and, and who then weeps when we do. These passages are kind of key to my testimony, not in the sense that I, like, took the two passages and I asked for, like, specific certification of them from God, but they, they're key to, I think, my, my worldview, my view of who God is. And, um, and the way that I felt God's love in my life. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'd love to hear from one of our audience members. Emily. Um, the information that we receive through the Pearl Great Price and through the, the revelation that Joseph Smith received is so incredibly valuable. That was kind of the first reaction that I got as I was reading through it, specifically about who God is and that we can see him face to face. There's so many people out there that don't understand who God is and what his purpose is with us as his children. And this clarifies it so wonderfully. So give me your personal take on that. Just from Emily, uh, who is God? I, I love to know that God is my actual father and that, that he loves us even more than our earthly parents do. And they love us a lot. And so that, that speaks to me to know that he is a father figure to me. Okay, so... I'm going to stay with you just for a minute, if you don't mind. <laughs> Knowing that, how does that change your everyday behavior, choices you make? It changes a lot for me to know that anything that happens to me, I think particularly bad things that happen, 
to know that it's not some God up there that is punishing me or trying to make me, you know, feel worse about myself. But knowing that he's a loving father helps me realize that every bad thing that I go through is for my good. It's for me to learn and to become more like him. That if I didn't understand that, every hard thing I would go through would be just treacherous. You wouldn't know what direction you're supposed to go, but, but knowing that helps me get through every single hard time. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's not always easy to share things like that, and I appreciate that. This has been a great discussion on the importance of the books of Moses and Abraham. I feel like when I feel God most often in just sort of a daily kind of situation, um, it's really just the little things that I know Heavenly Father understands are meaningful to me even if it wouldn't be to somebody else. I have an ongoing conversation with him. So from the moment I wake up to the time I go to bed, I am constantly in a conversation with him, whether that's um, formally through prayer or informally. Um, I'm always checking in with him. At the end of the day, I report back to him, let him know how my day goes, looking for blessings, um, living in an attitude of gratitude so that I can see his blessings in my life. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we are excited to jump into our next topic, which is God's work and glory is to help me gain eternal life. In Moses 139, God speaks with Moses and tells him his work and glory. But before that, he speaks with Abraham and Moses and shows them the cosmos or the created realm. I would love to get your thoughts on that. What do we learn from that and why did he do it? Well, if I could start on um, in Moses chapter 1, verse 7, God calls Moses by name and says, I show unto thee, Moses, my son, for thou art in the world, and now I show it unto thee. And, and then shows Moses everyone, all the children of men which are and which were created. And Moses is kind of gobsmacked because he just can't imagine all those different kinds of people. Um, and, and how could God care about all those people in the way that God does? Um, and this is where I guess we're just super impressed by God. I remember being in Hong Kong and um, looking at a single apartment building. And I was coming from you know, the United States and, and, like, and Hong, this, this one apartment building probably had about 10,000 people in it, which is like the size of my husband's hometown mm -hmm. in one building. And I was just completely gobsmacked. And I was like, that's like a lot of people. <laughs> and, and, and that's how God sees everyone. God can see so many people at once and yet care about them. And I really love something that Harold B. Lee said. Uh, sometimes we think the whole job is up to us, forgetful that there are loved ones beyond our sight who are thinking about us and our children. We forget that we have a heavenly father and a heavenly mother that influences from beyond are constantly working to try to help us when we do all we can. So it's so incredible to think about each one of us as we have our individual struggles and we have a heavenly father and a heavenly mother working with us and trying to help us completely involved in our world not just floating around out there outside mm -hmm. of it you know i had a i had a similar experience but instead of people it was uh, stars many years ago i was teaching at the byu jerusalem center and we had gone to uh, the sinai peninsula we were going to climb mount sinai and in that Sinai Peninsula, I looked at the sky and you see billions and billions of stars. I've never seen a sky like that. And I thought of how Moses there in verse 10, when he sees the glory of God and he says, I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. And when I sat there in that night and looked at that sky, I realized I was nothing compared to 
the universes of God's creations. But then I thought the Savior died and suffered and prepared the way for me, just one of billions. I didn't, I couldn't have felt more nothing, yet so something because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And it reminds me of the wonderful statement from uh, then President Diederich Uchtdorf, where he talking about the stars that he sees as he was flying. But then he said, this is a paradox of man. Compared to God, man is nothing. Yet we are everything to God. While against the backdrop of infinite creation, we appear to be nothing. We have a spark of eternal fire burning within our breast. And I just think that is so true. And Moses learns it firsthand that though we are nothing in comparison to God's majestic power, we are everything because of his only begotten son. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, you see a, um, a pretty stark contrast in that beginning conversation that as Moses hears from God this reference of my son. And immediately after, when he has his encounter with the adversary, he calls him something a little bit different. Can you talk to us about the significance of God calling Moses my son and Satan calling Moses son of man? Yeah. Well, um, I think to me, let's just back up a second. I think we can all relate to this in some way that often when we have had a great spiritual manifestation or a great spiritual experience where we have felt the closeness to God, it seems there comes into my life an immediate threat to that. Mm -hmm. Whether it's from Satan or man or myself, there is something that is always wanting to shake me away from what I already had had. And I think this episode that you refer to is a great example. Lucifer comes upon Moses and says, worship me. Don't worship the only begotten son of God. You're just a son of man. You're nothing. Moses sees the contrast. And he then says, where is thy glory that I should worship thee? He sees the difference. Then Satan goes nuts. Satan cried with a loud voice and ranted upon the earth and commanded, saying, I am the only begotten, worship me. And then look at this verse 20. And Moses began to fear exceedingly. And as he began to fear, he saw the bitterness of hell. But then the very next phrase, but calling upon God, Moses received strength. We have given us all strength through Christ to overcome Satan. That is one of the greatest episodes in all of Scripture to tell us who we are as daughters and sons of God and what power we have to counteract everything that Satan throws at us. I'm struck by what you say about how Moses looked at Satan and was super unimpressed and said, you know, where's your glory? And, and the thing that, you know, distinguishes us from Satan is that we have bodies. And I've never really thought about bodies as being super impressive just because they, you know, they stink and they get tired and 
Um, you know, they break and, and, and we all, I think all of us know how it feels to have a body that's not working properly. Um, I'm the oldest one here. I know all about that. I'm, I'm the living, walking evidence of the fall of Adam right here. So, <laughs> but like, but just, just thinking about that, that's like the difference between us and Satan. That is the, the kind of the glory that we have that, it, that also is God's is that we are embodied and that we're, we have this kind of material existence. That's really, it's really cool. And, 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 you know, when you, when you also think about bodies, you know, they are amazing. And I guess that's why when they break, it's so sad because they, they do so many things all the time. So that, I think that's just fantastic. This is a wonderful example of just the, um, the added insight we gained from the book of Moses. And I want to, uh, reach out to you guys and just give me an example of how have you seen that difference? When have you experienced something that is good and spiritual and wholesome and immediately felt the adversary kind of sneak in and try to remove that from you? Chad, please. When good things are going in our life, there's going to be the opposition and all things. I, when I know something is true and I have to go down that path and I start to feel that opposition, doubt, fear, worry, you just have to stay like a, like a train on the tracks going down that path and ignore the cheering section that's trying to pull you off. It is going to happen. You just got to stay true to the voice, the inner voice of which inner voice you're paying attention to, the voice of the spirit. Ask for it in abundance and to be very clear and to uh, not mess anything up. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So I want to throw this question out to the audience. On your individual journey, on your individual um, path back to God, how have you seen him guide you in your path? Kim. I've been on this path a long time. And I have seen how the Lord has guided me through all the hard parts. Through the loss of a child, through a cranial aneurysm, through everything that I've gone through, when I wanted to turn away, it was when I remembered him. When I remembered that I was a child of God, that I was loved, and that he wants me back. And so as I remember those things, as I work through it, I turn to him. And that's kept me on the path. When I remember who I am and where I'm going. Thanks for sharing that. I love that. Any other thoughts on when you have felt God guiding you along the path back to him. Adam, please. So at school, sometimes I, when there's bad influences, I, I feel the spirit talking to me and telling me not to, to walk away, you know, and not be influenced by those people. So how does that make you feel knowing that you have this influence that's trying to protect you? Makes me feel good because it feels safe, you know. I love that. Is there a specific way that you would say the Holy Ghost talks to you in general? It's through feelings. I, I can feel it. Like when it's wrong, when it's, you know, I feel like he's always protecting me. That's such a good answer. And I love that. And, you know, what you'll find, I think, is the more you, you listen the stronger those feelings are going to come. And it's going to be just like with Moses. It's going to be so clear 
the distinction between the good and the evil. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for audience, for your comments, and for our special guests and our scholars. It's been a wonderful discussion. We're excited to jump into the new segment of the show, which is called Footnotes. We'll be able to sit and discuss and dive a little bit deeper into some of these topics. And I'm looking forward to uh, talking more with you on um, some of these things. It's exciting. There's some great stuff here we need to discuss. So for me, the Spirit speaks to me in different ways. Maybe most often it just, it, it, it fills me with a kind of desire or enables me to see a person in a certain way and recognize they have needs and uh, maybe they're struggling in some sense. And I feel like typically that's sufficient to help me to act on it. I think the Spirit speaks to me most often when I am connecting to a work of art or fiction or a movie where someone has touched on one of the pieces of the human existence that is universal. And I realize how that applies to everyone around me. And it's almost like when you, you, you hit a glass and it's crystal and it's just this clear sound that comes. I recognize the spirit when it's that way because I, I know it's not coming from me and it's something I've learned to recognize as just clarity. And sometimes the clarity is words, sometimes it's clarity in thoughts, sometimes it's clarity in, in action. The Holy Ghost taught me today in this lesson that God has been there ever since the beginning and that He's planning on staying with us to the very end. And that brings so much peace to me to know that I'm, I'm not here alone. Welcome back to Come Follow Up Footnotes, where we get to dive in and discuss in greater detail some of the topics from Moses chapter one, Abraham chapter three. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, let's go ahead and start with you and see what you have to say. Well, I've there is so much great stuff in these two chapters as we've already discussed. But the one thing that I would say, and I think Melissa alluded to it earlier today, is that Abraham is so rich in theology. And I think we see Abraham chapter three, the very first verse where Abraham is receiving this revelation and these great theological teachings through the Urim and Thummim. And as Latter-day Saints, that is particularly interesting to us because the prophet Joseph Smith talks about using the interpreters to help him in his translation. But what I find interesting is the meaning of the word Urim and Thummim is lights and perfection. You think of over here when it talks about intelligence and God being more intelligent than all the others, it is not only IQ intelligence, far greater than that, it is light and truth, lights and perfections. It is not just omniscience, but it is the omnipotence that comes from complete obedience to eternal law. And so, light and truth uh, develops in us intelligence in God's way. We seek truth, we live light. I think that is what the Lord's trying to teach Abraham and us, that revelation comes to us through light and truth, ultimately leading to perfection. You know, I think that Joseph Smith is a perfect example of that, yeah. you know, in, in his station in life and where he was to receive so many wonderful revelations through that light and truth, despite his lack of, you know, formal education. Yeah. Remember, Emma said he couldn't even write a full sentence. And then you read Moses 1 and Abraham chapter 3, and you know that it comes from a far greater source. 
That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Melissa, give us some of your thoughts. Um, since we're talking about Abraham, I just have to mention um, the source, one of the kind of touch points for one of my favorite hymns, If You Could Hide to Kolob. Mm-hmm. Um, we have this really interesting discussion, which I'm, you know, I think the, the information is scant, but theologically we have this kind of launch into kind of cosmic organization, yeah. the nature of time, the differences between, you know, God's time and human time. Um, I think that's a really rich section. And then um, still kind of riffing on this idea of, of perspective, you know, Moses and Abraham both see everything mm-hmm. and they see themselves within everything and they're just completely blown away. Um, how amazing must it be to the extent that a human could to, to, to be able to see everything? So why do you think it is then that you have Moses and Abraham that are both given this similar experience of viewing the expanse of eternity. Why, what did you think the point was for them to have that experience? Well, that, that makes me think about that famous line in Moses chapter one, you know, Moses sees everything. And uh, in chapter one, verse 10, um, Moses is totally um, blown away. Uh, when God withdraws from Moses, he just kind of collapses. And it says on chapter, verse 10, it came to pass that it was for the space of many hours before Moses did again receive his natural strength. And he said unto himself, now for this cause, I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. And I think this is, you know, such a brilliant um, and, and poignant passage for so many reasons, because I think we all have time, even we may not have like seen the whole cosmos, but we have these experiences. Um, sometimes they're actual physical experiences where we see, you know, the grandeur of God's creation. And sometimes we have hard things happen to us, or sometimes we see our fellow beings in a completely different way. And all of those things just those, those, those massive expansions of sight just make us feel super small. And that can hurt. Yeah. But it can also be good because he's so right. Usually we think that we're everything, right? We're naturally self-centered. We think that the world revolves around us. And, and it can be such a gift to have that perspective and a sense of dimension. I can't even comprehend how you would absorb that kind of information. But uh, Moses tells us that if it was with his natural eyes and his natural means, he would have died. He couldn't have done it. And so he was transfigured. So you ask the question, well, why does Abraham and Moses, the brother of Jared, have these kinds of panoramic visions? And I don't know all the answers, but I think the more we can understand God's transcendence of all things, the more we can taste just a portion of God's glory, the more it motivates us to want to become more like God. And I think Moses and Abraham have the prophetic calling of helping people to feel some of that, to catch a glimpse of that, that they will strive to follow God. And do you think, thank you for sharing that, that's brilliant. Do you think that having a sense of our own nothingness builds a dependence on a God, a superior being, on a savior, realizing that, wow, I'm, I'm nothing, I need this, I need this, this assistance to be able to fulfill my destiny? That's definitely true. I can remember a time in my own life when I was in and out of the hospital a lot, and I was uh, driving in to another one of these appointments at the hospital, and I noticed that I was driving really slowly. 
and, and I was like, why am I driving so slowly? And I think I just felt less awesome, like <laughs> less powerful, less so, fast. So if, if I'm speeding, what does that mean? <laughs> well, because I, I, I was always, you know, I it was always in a hurry. Yeah. I was always trying to get a lot of stuff oh, that's done. That's a great example. But in the middle of this time when I was in and out of the hospital, I was just, huh. I'm driving really slowly. And I realized it was because I felt kind of humble. And like, like, who am I to go fast? Uh-huh. And, and like, why do, who am I to try to get a lot of things done? I'm just like super tired. And, and I think that like in that, in that time, like this scripture came into my mind, like I'm nothing, which thing I never had supposed. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a hard thing to feel, but I also saw a lot of different things and, under, and empathized with so many more mm-hmm. people at that time. You know, and in this, and in Moses chapter one, what I love is God points out very clearly what His purpose is: mm-hmm. is to bring us back, to uh, to bring to pass the immortality, the eternal life of man. And we see this um, connection in Moses one and in Abraham three, where we hear this term where God says to Moses, "My son." He says mm-hmm. to Abraham, "My son," drawing that. Uh, idea of I'm trying to create this connection between the two of us. Mm-hmm. And as we, you know, as we look at this idea of this creating this sense of nothingness on our own part, I can't help but think that the purpose is to continually try to remind us like, you need me, you know, this connection between God and man, bringing it a little closer to home. Yeah. In Abraham three, I think there is perhaps the greatest discussion that we have on God needing us to help further his purposes when we think of some of these spirits are noble and great, and these will I make my rulers. And and so he's saying to them, I'm going to need you to help bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. I'm going to need you. So don't wallow in your nothingness pity party but recognize you are noble and great and I need you. And to go back to your example in the Book of Mormon, we saw Ammon with his recognition oh. of that, look at what he was able to do right. to bring to pass Absolutely. You know, God's purpose for his children. Yeah. The Fordination concept is, I think, so important in that we tend to think of ordination. I remember as a young boy and you know, our, my seminary teacher had said, oh, you'll learn about your ordination and your patriarchal blessing. I rip open the envelope when it comes from the patriarch and I read through it looking for my ordination. It doesn't say any of the cool stuff that I thought were ordinations. And I think what the Lord is trying to say there in Abraham chapter three, when he says, these will I make my rulers, to help bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man is I like to think these will I make my rulers in the house of Israel to bring about the gathering, as President Russell Nelson says, of gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil. It's far more important that my patriarchal blessing says that I am the house of Israel. That, I think, is the rulers that really, really matter the most to the Lord. Just riffing a little bit on what Brent said about foreordination. Um, you know, we were talking about how we tend to think that we're not nothing, how we tend to like be mm-hmm. really self-centered. And um, just as for speaking from the point of view um, of history as a historian, there have been times in the past when people have 
used for, for ordination, this kind of doctrine that we have of a pre-existence and a foreordination as a way to say, uh, and this is why I'm so awesome, mm -hmm. you know, and this is why I'm on top. Um, and this is why they're on the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, the most egregious example, of course, would be people who wrongly claimed that uh, black people had been, quote unquote, fence sitters in the pre-existence. Right. Um, people who just kind of reach for this easy explanation like it happened in the pre-existence, like clearly that's why everything now mm -hmm. is great. Um, but it's not just those times in our history. It's just um, more generally there's this kind of tendency, I think, of people to think, you know, if a kind of prosperity gospel-esque mm -hmm. tendency to be like, I, I must have been like foreordained because this is how awesome I am. And right. we, can, we can wrongly use that idea of, um, of noble people or honored people or, or intelligences or whatever to kind of pat ourselves on the back. And I think um, like it's ironic that they would get that from these passages where we have been taught that like we're nothing, mm -hmm. right? Where, um, where we're like everyone is, is like specks of dust, mm -hmm. um, important, but like not, not awesome in and of ourselves only through God. Yeah, in fact, I think there are some important principles associated with ordination of what uh, Melissa has mentioned is that one, we do know that ordination was to some degree a reward of premortal faithfulness, but that's not the only factor. Sometimes the factor is that what is best for God's purposes, also what is best for me. Sometimes people take that prosperity, both spiritual and temporal doctrine to think, well, because I was born in the last days, uh, in the United States of America on the east bench of Salt Lake and my pioneer ancestry uh, goes all the way to Joseph Smith, we think, well, we're somehow better than that person that was born in ancient times in other more difficult circumstances. And I think if you take that philosophy, then you have to throw out Abraham himself because here was Abraham born into a family of idol worshipers. And I'm not going to say by any means that I was better in the pre-mortal world because I was born in the last days to a Latter-day Saint believing family than Abraham was. Because we still have our agency Absolutely. regardless of the situation we're born in. So let's talk about the connection between foreordination and agency. I, I like to think of foreordination uh, as a pre-appointment that is con a conditional bestowal, not absolute. And I can be foreordained and not fulfill my foreordination, and that foreordination really means nothing to me. So agency is the motor that makes foreordination meaningful. Much like a patriarchal blessing. Absolutely. All those blessings that have been promised mean nothing That's if exactly you exercise a your agency in a, in a negative yeah. manner. Elder Maxwell uh, says that uh, foreknowledge does not predetermine outcomes. Now that's a really interesting and heavy thought. Because God knows all things, he doesn't cause me to do those things. I can choose. He may know, and he does know the beginning from the end, but he's not going to force me right. by virtue of his foreknowledge. And so agency is indeed the motor that drives coordination. And I think that ties in really well to Abraham chapter 3, verse 25, or even backing up to 24, where they say, we'll make an earth whereon people may dwell, and we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. 
you know, this idea of earthly life as a time of proving is kind of sobering. It's yeah. um, not very fun to be proved. It's tricky. It's a lot of work. And I think in times like that, however, we have the opportunity to be who we were created to be, which is to, to make choices and to learn to become like God. And the scriptures also tell us that um, to whom much is given, much is required. Mm -hmm. There's that kind of law of proportions. Being born into fortunate circumstances or not having to worry about where your next meal comes from, that's not like a perk that you get. That's right. Um, that's an obligation yeah. to, to use your life and your resources to help those who have those struggles. Yeah, in fact, that reminds me of what you just said, something that I heard Elder uh, Neil A. Maxwell teach us in a leadership session of, of state conference where he had just come back from uh, Nigeria, if I remember right, and had created one of the very first stakes after the revelation uh, on the priesthood. And he said, they who have so little will soon pass us up who have so much. And I think that's the point we're trying to say is the ordination is to spiritual responsibilities. Uh, Elder Maxwell went on to say, just because we were chosen then and there does not mean we can be indifferent here and now. And he says it is not a relaxing doctrine for that very reason, because where much is given, much is expected. And that was the, the exact thought I was just going to bring up that you said a lot better than I could have. But just the idea of regardless of how and where we are raised, you know, we are judged according to to what we have been, getting, been given and what are we doing with that, that knowledge and understanding that we have moving forward. Mm -hmm. So great insights. I, I'd like to just maybe build on the, on the word prove. We will prove them herewith. Can you, sorry, can you tell us where? Uh, okay, so, so, so in e Abraham chapter three, verse 25. Okay. And uh, after it says, we will create the earth, which is in verse 24. Then in verse 25, he says, we will prove them herewith. Uh, and see if they will do what we command them to do. And, and I know my students and I've thought a lot about, well, this is like midterms and final exams. Am I going to pass those exams? Well, I think that's part of it. But I think another word for prove there could be I will refine them. I will refine them just like when you are creating precious metals from ore you're separating out those things. And so you are in essence proving. Mm. And so it, yes, it is sometimes we're gonna have our faith tested and tried, but all along the way, obedience to the principles of the gospel isn't necessarily just this big bad test that I've got to cram for as much as it is, it is a blessing to me in that I'm becoming refined and that the dross of my life is going to be burned out, that's the proving mm. process as well as, oh, I've got to be obedient in every way or I flunk the test. Whether you started here or here, it's that growth process from where you began. That's right. Since we're talking about proving your, your um, metals metaphor, yeah. made me think about a bread metaphor. Ooh. So um, in baking, you've got proofing dishes. Oh, uh, wonderful. Right, and you have to proof the bread. And that process is a process of the living things in the bread growing and growing. And then this is the best part. They grow and they grow and they usually swell, but you have to keep them from swelling too much or else it ruins the bread. And they create all these bad alcoholic tasting products. And, uh, and then also 
bread loses its structure and collapses. So you actually have to like punch it down. Bam, 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 yeah, bam, I've bam, seen that. No, you punch it down and you let it rise and punch down multiple times and that develops the flavor and the character of the bread. You know, as I was studying uh, this chapter, uh, Abraham chapter three, um, I came across this idea of the first and the, the second estate. And uh, I would just love to get uh, in, in your studies, um, what, what sort of insights you have to add about specifically, you know, what does it mean to keep your first estate? What does it mean to keep your second estate? And any other additional insights you have on that? Well, uh, the scripture in verse 28 that you're referring to there uh, of the first estate and second estate is really in the context of the war in heaven. Well, we know that Satan didn't keep the first estate meaning that he rebelled against God and is cast out and thus didn't have a second estate in the sense of the plan of salvation. And so the first estate is where we were spirit offspring of heavenly parents uh, being prepared to come to the second estate. And I just see that as phases of our existence. Even though we don't see in the scripture speaking of the post-mortal spirit world as the third estate, okay. but Satan rebelled and became angry and was cast out and thus didn't have a second estate. So it's got to be comforting knowing, you know, as we go through different struggles in this life, knowing that, you know, at least I did something right. You know, I kept my first estate because I'm here. Mm-hmm. You know, and now it comes down to learning and receiving the strength necessary to keep our second estate, right. you know, as we navigate through this mortal life. That doctrine of knowing who we were before we came here manifest in our patriarchal blessings and our declaration of lineage of the house of Israel. It tells us that because we were faithful, full of faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ and his future atoning sacrifice, we were faithful there. We have the power and resources and the atoning blood of Christ to be faithful here. Uh, I think it should be something that helps us get over our unhealthy sense of nothingness when we recognize who we were there, what we can be like here, and what or who we will become in the eternities through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love it. I love it. With that sense of, you know, the value, the inherent value and the dignity of people who come to the earth. When Moses says, you can't number these things, yeah. but they're numbered to me and I know them. Yeah. The, you know, the infinity and intimacy. Right. This kind of uh, alludes to this This continual idea of, of God trying to help Moses uh, and Abraham recognize who they are, yeah. you know, their, their real identity, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to their relation to him. And in this world in which we live, I think it's very clear that there is a, a battle for our individual identity. Mm-hmm. So how can we, as we talk about really understanding who we are in relation to God, and we sing about it, as kids in primary, it's one of the first songs that we all know, I am a child of God. What do you think that does to individuals as they really come to understand who they are, specifically living in this world today where so many different places and people are trying to say, no, you're this and you're this and you're, this is how you should identify. Uh, What do you think is the importance of identifying us 
first and foremost, as children of God. Doesn't it set out our sense of priorities? I mean, if we actually believe that people are, other people are also children of God, if we, if we actually believe the two great commandments was put, put us in relation to God and put us in relation to other people, um, to be a Christian then means first and foremost to hold this kinship with other people above all other identities. So before we're left or right or whatever, Asian or non-Asian or whatever, um, we're always a child of God. In fact, I think uh, the song, I am a child of God, so theologically rich, but it is so ubiquitous in the church that maybe some of its theological richness has been lost. Right. And I think it's important that we see people as God sees all of us. That for me is one of the spiritual gifts that I seek for the most is to see as God sees. But that's also like the hardest thing. Oh, right? absolutely. That's like the thing where I failed the most. Like I can like live the word of wisdom, but I Perfectly. can't even follow yeah. Jesus. Yeah. You know? So so what are the kind of things that you do in your own life to kind of check yourself or notice your biases or like, you know, do a, do a test, fix things? Because it's the most difficult thing. And I don't know whether I've got any magic answers, but uh, for me, uh, Melissa, I just try to see people as my sister, my brother. Do I fail miserably? Yes. But I'm trying. And, and then my wife tells me that. She says, Brent, you're so trying. And I don't know whether that means I'm trying in a good way or a bad way, but, <laughs> but at least I'm trying in that regard. And look at how when you put that identity as sons and daughters of God first, the identity of followers of Jesus Christ first, then you can embrace different cultures, different aspects of our lives that can get in the way when you put those above who we really are and how we view each other, which will ultimately lead to God fulfilling his, his purpose. Thank you both for your comments. This has been a wonderful discussion and I personally have been spiritually edified and I, I have a greater desire to go in and, and learn more. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank Thanks. You. And thank you for joining us for another episode of Come Follow Up. Please join us next time. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.